This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me in the studio today is none other than the esteemed Dr. Mark Donahoe, a favourite friend and mentor of mine. Welcome, Mark. How are you? Very, very well. Good to be back. (laughs) Good to be back. Mark, today we're going to be talking about reducing cardiovascular risk in primary care and what clinicians need to know and what they need to do. Firstly, what are the opportunities for prevention and lifestyle um, with regards to management of cardiovascular risk? Okay, firstly, just putting it in context, and your other speakers have probably told you this before, mate, we've all heard it, cardiovascular disease is still a really big killer. The toss-up between it and cancer is the number one killer. And most of the money is thrown at what happens after the event. And in fact, much of the research is what happens after the event. How do we stop people having a second or third heart attack? But it's responsible for about 11% of deaths in the country, preventable deaths in the country. There's an opportunity to make a big difference for about two to three million Australians if primary care practitioners were able to get a good grip of just what can we advise, when do we advise, what tools do we have to assess who's at risk and who's not. Because the number one thing that's been turned up out of this whole the quantum show and the use of statin drugs is that doctors were very indiscriminate about the prescription of statins used in the right people. These are drugs that have amazing potential to do some good. But when they are simply applied on the basis of what's your total cholesterol or even what's your LDL cholesterol, they are much, much less useful and probably not the primary go-to thing to do for for the GP or for the naturopath who's seeing a person who's saying, am I at risk? Is there something that I need to do for my heart? That is a common presentation. Tell me if my heart needs fixing. And it's normally wife sending husband Mm. (laughs) and husband being entirely unwilling to go through this conversation, but you've got to do something. And we need these kind of tools now to say, who's really at risk versus who's the people who we just automatically in the past said, you've got high cholesterol, we can reduce that with statins. Statins is not enough and sometimes too much. And that's the thing about that drug. Indeed, you say men getting sent, but that ratio is now changing, isn't it, for certain cardiovascular disease? I know. And, and you've got to be careful about this. When lifestyle changes, one of the things that has changed is men have stopped smoking and women have started smoking. And so when you get a big background player like smoking in this whole cardiovascular risk, you do see the expected rise in women getting cardiovascular disease. What's more surprising is they're presenting in somewhat different ways to men. They're picking up maybe signs earlier, and this is something that we do see in primary care practice that women will come with earlier signs whereas men have ignored those signs and ignored those signs and ignored those signs women come along with the presentation and the funny thing is if you ask men about it the similar subtle signs were there before but they paid no attention to it and said I don't need to see a doctor about that Okay, so my question from there is if women are more in tune with their bodies and are finding these um, symptoms of cardiovascular risk or disease earlier why then are more women dying from cardiovascular disease? If they're catching it earlier... They're catching it earlier, but we doctors are not because we have ingrained in our minds men are the ones who die from cardiovascular disease. General practice, I think any any, um, primary care practice, there's a huge amount of 
triage. Yep. You know, you snap to a judgment. You know men don't get breast cancer, but occasionally men do get mm. breast cancer. Mm. We ha- kind of know that the risk was with men. 20, 25 years ago, when many doctors were being trained, the risk was with men, and it was rare to see women with cardiovascular disease. But the world changes around us. Diet starts to influence everyone somewhat more evenly. And women have a bit of an advantage in cardiovascular disease that estrogen gives them a bit of protection in those early years. So now we're seeing aging populations and now we're seeing the women presenting with the same problems men presented with 20 years earlier, 20 years ago. Mm. So medicine's always on the, hey, guess what? Biology is biology. Mm. Harm is harm. Mm. Sexes are not that well protected. And if you think in evolutionary terms, yes, it's true. Women have to have that extra decade of life to successfully raise children. And for men, it's, you know, we're largely irrelevant after procreation, <laughs> <laughs> as Viagra sales would indicate. Um, but those, those things conspire to make a doctor think, if you come in and you've got a bit of a pain in the shoulder or it's in the scapula or it's a bit of shortness of breath and walking up a hill, if the classical pain, the precordial pain, this, what we ask is this kind of sitting pressure, so like someone sitting on the front of the chest, radiating down the left arm, up into the jaw, we're good at doing the quick triage mm. that says, are you getting angina and are you short of oxygen right now? What we're not good at picking up is the more subtle signs where function is lost, and we in functional medicine should be paying a special attention to that. We take longer histories, spend longer with the person. The opportunity's there for us to find these diseases at the earliest stages of presentation, not wait until it's bloody obvious. So maybe the the real problem of modern day medicine is because of the pressures on medical practitioners for time, that there's too much weight given to the axiom Common things happen commonly. Yes. I love to say it. When you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, unless you're in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) And it does apply here that, you know, we have this thing of what's common is common. And it often takes us a long time, as in years of practice, Mm. to wake up to something that has changed. This happened with asthma. Mm. Asthma was a non-problem, a non-problem, a non-problem, until it was a disastrous problem. Mm. And that was because we were not inclined to see each case as an expansion of the asthma base. Same with cardiovascular disease in women. We were not inclined to see it because the deaths happen in hospital away from the general practice. You don't get the feedback, and more importantly, you don't get the classic, hey, doc, uh, for the last six months, I've been putting up with this incredible pain here, and it's suddenly getting worse and going down my left arm. Any doctor can pick that. The worst of us can pick that, but we can't pick up the more subtle signs. And, And that focus change now comes back, I think, to functional medicine and the appreciation of biology. What Mark Houston says about, you know, inflammation, immunology, oxidative changes, endothelial changes, we should be thinking different. I'm preaching to the converted here on FX Medicine, right? Uh, these are We are all practitioners who want to think that way, but you first have to change your mind and think, this person coming in, do I need to pay attention to them in a cardiovascular sense? And I think now the answer is we do. We're just learning those tricks. Mark Houston talks about the cardiovascular system reflecting damage from inflammation, oxidative stress, and immune dysfunction. Can you talk to us about those three key facets, please? Well, he also has a deeper insight, which really transformed the way I thought about things last year, and I'm busting to hear that again. It is that there are infinite insults, 
And there's only a finite number of or types of responses that mm. the human body can perform. And that the cardiovascular system is en passant. It's in passing that things that are damaging other organs are damaging the cardiovascular system. It's a transport system. Mm. <clears throat> so when things go wrong, the inflammation is going to be one of those factors. Inflammation, even as measured by C-reactive protein, seems a much more highly predictive factor than total cholesterol, definitely, but even LDL cholesterol. So control of inflammation, I would say, is one of the number one jobs of the primary care practitioner. You protect all organs by an inflammation controlling uh, approach, but the cardiovascular system gets good benefits and does not proceed on to clot up those arteries and then to cut off the blood supply. The oxidative damage we've known for years, and it's still in flux. You know, oxidation is a process that happens at the cellular level. It mm. does damage to DNA. It can change. It's got epigenetic effects. It's but it's also various... required for normal respiration. That's right. It, it, is, so... it is an absolutely normal process in the body, and we have oxygen-dependent antioxidant systems, so we rely on oxygen to build our protection against oxygen. So it is a very complex system, but I think what Mark's pointing out is if it starts to move too far to the pro-oxidant side and we give it no relief, mm. constant low-grade heightened oxidation responses are going to see tissue damage. They're going to see failure of repair or even abnormal epithelial repair, and they're going to see the potential, at least, for clotting, the, you know, the oxidation response for the uh, immune system which is the third um, tent pole that he has, mm. the oxidation response there is critical to getting rid of infections. The superoxide bursts and the, the neutrophils and the, and the approaches of the immune system to drop bombs on the enemy is profoundly an oxidation process that releases very, very toxic molecules and we mop them up. And the bacteria or the viruses or the targets of that oxidative response do not mop it up. But those things going on in the body provide us a conceptual framework to say it's not that we are trying to unplug an artery in the heart. So the surgeon's approach of let's take the clot out, you are cured, go on your way, mm. is a flawed mechanistic model. The heart was seen as the target of the disease. It is in passing an, a clear signal that something is wrong with those inflammatory, oxidative and immune dysfunction, that that needs a much broader approach. And mm. we are seeing that. We see people who've got their stents put in who get their cancers, their diabetes, their cardiovascular diseases elsewhere in the body. It should not surprise us that fixing one little point, which is a critical point, I'm <laughs> not decrying <laughs> the person who gets that clot out and saves a life, but it should not surprise us that that should just be the start of a process, more than just rehabilitation going on, but a search for the origins of that. And mm. I think that's the contribution that Mark really has in this area, is that cardiovascular system can be seen as the canary in the mine yeah. in some ways, that we have got good methods of measuring it, we know the normal ranges, and if we're paying attention to that, we've got a basis to which to uh, by which we can identify which of those three things is dominant, or are all three dominant, control inflammation, control oxidation, and control your abnormal immune responses, then we make profound differences in prevention. Whereas, if you leave it till a heart attack, you're really stuck with much, much less effective ways of managing it. Mm. I do want to raise something with that as well, and that is there's eternally this issue about are omega-3s really protective? 
Should we not just go to statins? The statin studies were primarily secondary prevention. You've had a heart attack, what's the best thing to do next? But the early studies, before statins ever came along, the early studies were really clear that omega-3 protection as primary protection was superior to statins themselves. What the trouble is, is that statins inhibit the omega-3 response. So once you shift onto the kind of, we have a technological model... You forsake a nutritional model in a deep way. When people decide that they are no longer going to put up with statins, the muscle pain, the fatigue, the inability to think straight, when they say, I'm coming off my statins, if they have had a heart attack, there's a risk that we've got to address that's serious. But if they have not had a heart attack, effective use of the omega-3s is going to be very, very protective for that group of people. I think one of the issues with some of the fish, well, some of the recent fish oil media releases, if you like. Um, And and I should say, even the uptake by the medical profession and and, uh, government authority is that they're relying on meta-analyses from heterogeneous groups. If you want to look at this, you've got to look at fish oil alone, without statins, without anything else, and how that benefits people. Or have that at least as one arm of of a study where you're looking at other therapies involved. Not this plus that, that plus something else, and we'll just lump them all together and see what lands. Mm. That's not a way to look at... You are dead right. And in fact, the, the sensible assessment of the past was that there was a secret additive to the formula with fish oils, and that is heaps of people were put on aspirin. Mm. The salicylic acid or the acetyl donation of that enhances the effect of the omega-3s. So in their conversion down the line, it's not specifically aspirin, it's that it was acetyl salicylic acid. So the experimenters now use the acetyl group from aspirin to enhance the conversion of the omega-3s down to the neuroprotectins, protectins, and resolvins. What are they? These are primary molecules at the nanomolar level for inflammation protection. So we had a process where omega-3s were in the diet in fairly hefty amounts. Over a century, it dropped from maybe one to one down to around about one to 10 in favor of omega-6. We have arachidonic acid, great for pro-inflammatory responses, good if you're getting infections, but once out of balance in that way, all of the population who's susceptible to that inflammation start to show up just through dietary sources. We added by chance aspirin with the mistaken belief aspirin was going to cure everything to do with cardiovascular disease, and the studies that were strongest in favor of omega-3s was at the peak of aspirin use. Now, often in those studies, they didn't even note whether the person was on aspirin, the omega-3s were done. But what these researchers have pointed out as aspirin fell away in use, it returned to the previous level of protection. Once statins were started, it sucked the life out of the omega's ability to do the job that they were, be, that they were designed to, or not designed to do, mm-hmm. but they did do yeah. in normal nutrition in the body. And so we do have a much more complex story that Medicine has traded what was given for cardiovascular protection in the diet at one stage. It fell out of favor. We got cardiovascular disease for a whole variety of reasons. And then when it comes to stopping it, we focused on secondary prevention trials so that once the person's had a heart attack, you could do a trial at high efficiency because you know most of those people are going for their second heart attack without paying too much attention to primary prevention. So the message here for clinicians is that acetylation, like methylation, is not just a, a, a facet of phase two detoxification, but we're talking about how things are utilized at the membrane. That's right. And how things are converted. So you go from uh, millimolar amounts of the omega-3s when it becomes dietary, 
you go down step by step to highly, highly potent final end products. And at that nanomolar level, they're really easy to miss. The reason that they're being paid attention to is our other method of control of inflammation, the non-steroidals, the COX-2 inhibitors, all of these drugs have got serious gastrointestinal adverse mm. effects. So mm. the search has been on for what's the way of getting inflammation resolved. What we didn't understand, I certainly did not, until I read about the resolvins and the uh, protectants, is that resolution of inflammation is a very organized process in the biochemistry of the body. It's not just broken things reassemble themselves. There is a whole process of signaling and organization, and it shouldn't really surprise us, but the omega-3s are an essential part of that signaling process for a successful resolution of inflammation. So you have there, at one end of the scale, a method of resolution which would have been dietary, but which we can now still fill the gaps in with the omega-3s. And it is, while it's true that acetylation can be achieved by aspirin, there's lots of other acetylators that we can use that are nutritional agents. And so aspirin is not essential, but it's what researchers work with because it's cheap and cheerful, and that's how you get a study done. <laughs> and no one's going to argue with aspirin. And so, He's going to fund it. Yeah. And so that, that gives, I mean, that gives practitioners, I think, a realistic first start for inflammation control. You then have curcumins and you have a range of other nutritional agents that can be used as if they were drugs to have an effect. Mm. These are not, you know, just have a curry every third week. These are methods of intervening to stop that same signaling for the inflammatory processes. And so our ability to intervene on the inflammation front, I think, is one of the most exciting parts of integrative medicine. Mm. Because the anti-inflammatories that we doctors have been given to dole out to our patients don't cut the mustard anymore. You know, I, I think there's an important point here, and that is uh, speaking with um, Dr. Jason Kaplan earlier, yes. who's a cardiologist who, who works holistically with his patients. And he made the point about that it's best to get things from the diet if we can. Yes. And you can get appreciable amounts, as we know, of omega-3 fatty acids from fatty fish, from Tuna, salmon, mackerel. In the old days, maybe grass-fed cattle. Maybe grass-fed cattle. Yes, that's right. And so for those people that are willing to integrate that into their diet, then that works. Do it. But for those people that will not eat fish, like my eldest son, then a fish oil supplement is is, um, applicable. Yes. Likewise... Please enjoy curries <laughs> and make it with lots and lots of turmeric. Stir fries, it's amazing the amount of curcumin or turmeric that you can add to a stir fry to have a therapeutic action. And if you can't or you don't like those foods, then okay, it may be applicable to take a supplement or indeed in the acute phase or something like that, the management. But where we can to try and get these dietary components from the diet itself. There's, there are molecules of life and there are synthesized molecules to do a job just like the molecules of life. Mm. We are well adapted to a whole biology of symbiotic organisms called our planet and our ability to go and find that. I've said this to you many times. Mm. When I retire, I wish to be a herbalist. Mm. Why? Because that complexity, which I was so fearful of as a young doctor about herbs, how do you know what's in them? Well, how do you know what's in food? How do you know what's in anything? (laughs) How do you know what's in your air these Mm. days? Mm. The fact is... We have molecules that we and nature have decided are good communications. We all benefit from them. The human or the pre-humans that did not benefit 
from them are not here anymore. So there is that relationship of nature with humanity, which about 100 years ago, a slice was put across it as nature red in tooth and claw. Don't trust nature. Anything can go wrong in nature. <laughs> and it was a misinterpretation yeah. of, you know, we had high death rates. People died young, but they died of infectious diseases coming to cities. And we're learning the how to treat the exceptional things, the antibiotic revolution. Those things are useful. But what we fail to do is deal with the complex health problems. We can deal with the pneumonias. We can deal with the, you know, the particular things. But once you talk diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease as a process of inflammation, oxidation, and, uh, and immune dysfunction, we lose our way in that. And complexity is the order of the day. Mm. When I was a young doctor, more than three medications was considered polypharmacy and bad. Mm. Now we have the proposals for the polypill where you put five, six, or seven agents in the one pill and then add others on top of it. So we are struggling to get to the end of that, that all we're doing is adding single ingredients, mm. hoping that we do no harm, stepping back 20 years ago, ooh, not such a brilliant idea in everybody. And mm. I think that's the lesson from the statins. Not that they were never a good idea for everyone, but for the majority of people, there was no benefit mm. from them and there was only the risk of harm. And we failed to identify the ones that could have benefited. And just a point on that polypill sort of scenario, mm. um, um, I won't mention who he is, but a, a, an elderly retiree gentleman um, on uh, five medications for cholesterol and heart, um, a, a previous history of ACS, so but not infarct, mm. um, managing things well, cholesterol level dropping. However, the issue that arose um, was this horrible dermatitis mm. and particularly brought on by stressful situations. So what happened then was the patient was shipped off to a dermatologist and there was extra medications for that and extra uh, and steroids okay. <laughs> as well. Um, da, da, da. So it became this certain, uh, you know, a, a true case of polypharmacy. Usually there's a, an addition of a psychiatric drug. If stress is part of it, well, there's another one. Oh, let's well, also take down your stress. It wasn't recognised, that, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. But, but um, basically what happened was the, the dermatological symptoms got to such a state that the patient couldn't handle it and went to see a cardiologist who very smartly took this patient off all but one of his medications, including the steroids, and all of the symptoms resolved, and he is now handled on one medication alone. Mm. Has never been brighter. <laughs> Derm dermatology, fine. <laughs> well, I, sh I should own up to this. In 1980, 81, 82, 83, I was in a hospital which no longer exists called Lidcombe Hospital. I had a very, very bright registrar, uh, Dennis, who I worked under. Dennis saw people coming into hospital. I'd been trained in pharmacology. He said, we're going to get people off these drugs. Most of these oldies don't need them. And I'm saying, these are demented people coming in. These need medicine more than anybody. And over that six-month period, time after time, they come off it, a normal, healthy, mm. aged person mm. who had a bit of a poopy attitude because they'd been medicated into submission, emerged from that. Mm. And I learnt the art of getting people off their medications, and that's how my medical practice started. My introduction to complementary and integrated medicine was an awareness of the overprescription and the effect, of, the adverse effect of polypharmacy, and I still see that today, time after time, every week in my practice. Mm. Let's talk about some clinical aspects, some mm. clinical tools that clinicians need. The problem of white coat hypertension in patients is yeah. huge. 
It's especially huge in our patients. Integrative medicine patients are not people who like doctors generally. The integrative medical practitioner is kind of, you know, yes, I'll put up with you because you're a little bit complimentary, but these are people who generally like to avoid doctors. And when a doctor comes at them with equipment, the stress response hits, they are hyper-responsive to stress, they've got a high surveillance, and their blood pressure goes up, the doctor measures it, and then says, you need to be on heart pills, you Mm. need to be on something to lower your blood pressure, which only raises the stress further because they've known what the adverse effect of medications are. So I think we as integrative practitioners have a much higher responsibility to ensure that we're not treating white coat hypertension, that we're not seeing something in our practices putting a blood pressure monitor on the person, getting a couple of measurements and say, oh, that's way too high. And there are ways. You can put the 24-hour blood pressure monitors on people. They eventually, in the second half of the day, get used to it, and you get a little bit better representation of the blood pressure. And we do know that intra-arterial monitoring does show that there's people with white coat hypertension. There's other people who relax. The only time they relax is when they see a doctor and they think, oh, the doctor will look after it. Their blood pressure goes down and then they return to work in a high-pressure job and promptly have their strokes. So we have the problem with white, uh, white coat hypertension and hypotension and finding out better ways of knowing what the real blood pressure is for a person, not just assuming our measurements are right, is a new trick. The technologies are showing that up, and I think pretty soon we'll be having the wearables that will give us reasonable feedback so that we can do what we need to do. What's the blood pressure like at night? Mm. How does it drop? What's the pattern of dropping and picking up? Does it drop? Yes, Mm. does it drop at all? Mm. And so... It, like statins with cholesterols and knowing a bit more about it, we're opening up this issue of hypertension. And hypertension is a critical one because we do know that the people with the highest blood pressure, especially when it gets uh, systolic over 165, that there is a serious increase mm. in the risk of cardiovascular disease inde- independent of anything else and stroke. Um, whereas when you've got these blood pressures of 145, 150, you have to be concerned that the person may be more worried and that their background blood pressure may be a lot better than that. So that's one area. We can do something positive by not treating a person unnecessarily for hypertension by paying attention to what their real blood pressure is over a real-life 24-hour period. Mm. I, I would encourage everyone to do that because that gives people chance to adapt to the measurement and not to become freaked out by a one-off measurement. So practical things, if their systolic's over 165, then they're applicable for a 24-hour blood pressure monitoring. If they're not that level, if they're like the 120 to 140... As right, a which systolic is, pressure. Which is hypertensive, but... Well, 120 is not hypertensive. Over 120, 120 yeah. to 140. So um, if we've got that, then it's certainly probably applicable to get a uh, home blood pressure monitoring kit? Yeah, uh, the the simple sphigs I think are useful. The The wrist-worn ones are not that useful because mm. it requires holding them in the right position. But yep. the little armband ones now are very, very good, keep a record. So the ones that are put around your biceps muscle. That's right, because that always holds it roughly at the level of your heart, whereas the wrist one, you have to get it in the right position, mm. and most people forget that. They're holding it down. No, they're sitting it. on the chair. That's yeah. right. And so they'll, they'll end up with abnormal pressures there. And it's got to do with correct blood pressure Measurement, hasn't yeah. it? The- I have to say, the new ones that have got the little buttons and the you know the line-up things, people are getting good, reliable blood pressure measurements time after time. Now, yep. when they grab the old doctor's figs and put it around their <laughs> yep. arm, the blood pressure sometimes was missing entirely and they clearly had not died. So what about the use of uh, risk assessment tools and algorithms to decide when and how to manage 
total cardiovascular risk. Right. This is this is big on the agenda, and the tools are simplistic right at the moment. They're the answering of half a dozen little questions. And so you get to have the risk assessment of yeah, sex, age, uh, systolic blood pressure. There's a standard set of measurements which we use to predict what's the odds of you having a major cardiovascular event in the next five years. Mm-hmm. And we use cutoff points. If it's less than 10%, then we should probably go simply for lifestyle, dietary, and exercise management. If it's 10 to 15%, then we get a little bit more intensive about the lifestyle management with rapid reassessment to decide what's needed for treatment after that. And if we fail to do it after all efforts are made at the lifestyle intervention, then you have an entry point, which in my view should be first with something herbal. Mm. Can we do something to change the way the vascular system is responding to address the inflammation, to address the oxidation, to address the immune response? Mm -hmm. And it makes it really worthwhile ticking those things off individually. Is there some infection which is triggering the immune function to be aggressive, overactive? Are we seeing that inflammatory response in part because the immune system is annoyed about chronic glandular fever virus or arthritis or something else that we should be paying attention to? And is the vascular system taking a hit simply in passing? Can we do something for oxidation control? Well, you can. You can have a look at what are the pro-oxidant effects, how to stop the smoking. You even have to look in some people at over-exercising that there are people who go fanatically the other way and do harm. You actually Mm. see the neutrophils drop away afterwards. They become so fanatical about the exercise that they exceed their antioxidant capacity and they start to do the meltdown of the muscles and then the mitochondrial dysfunction. So sometimes the advice is tone it down, spread it out a little bit more. When you reach my venerable age, don't think you're 20 years of age and keep on doing the same things that 20-year-olds do because you will hurt yourself. No tough mutter at your age. No, at my age. (laughs) I have seen plenty of people, the women ending up with cardiovascular symptoms, who have done these extraordinary things of cutting backpacks of rocks around for 10 weeks uh, in a period which is strictly just masochistic or sadistic, depending which side of that fence you're on. And the harm done is significant. They are in an inflamed pro-oxidant state. And whatever good the exercise may have done and whatever the self-esteem issues may have been, there is literal damage that has to be repaired and that can take a year or more. So paying attention to the pro-oxidant effects, paying attention to the inflammation, that's step three. And if you can reduce the systolic blood pressure, you can't reduce the age, you can get people off their cigarettes. Alcohol is tricky. Because it does seem as though there may be no cardiovascular risk and probably some benefit. I've heard Dave Cahoon talk about this and others, that it could be as high as up to three drinks a day. And three drinks, three standard drinks of alcohol per day on average, 20 drinks a week is usually considered excessive. That's standard drinks, right? That's standard not, drinks, not, not your not type <laughs> of drinks, Andrew. The, right. These are standard <laughs> drinks. But <laughs> those could be actually beneficial for Mm. the cardiovascular system. But as the addiction counsellor said immediately after Dave's talk, this is no good for people who are alcoholics. This is no no good for people with liver disease or um, Mm. gastrointestinal And you're not allowed to save them up. No, you can't have them all on the the weekend. 21 drinks on a Saturday doesn't really work out well. But we have to be careful about it. The old days, it was great. You know, excessive drinking was defined as having two drinks more than your doctor had. 
on any given day. (laughs) And so if your doctor was a teetotaler, two drinks was too many. (laughs) If your doctor was an alcoholic, there was almost no amount that was too much. So we we now have better statistics to say in that range, two to three drinks a day, Mm -hmm. cardiovascular risk may bottom out, but there may be other factors that you've got to pay attention to. The gut may not do that well, especially in women, gut and liver. I love the way that Winston Churchill answered a question about alcohol. And he said, they said, do you think it should be you know, restricted. And he said, well, if you're talking about the alcohol that causes the the husband to waste the the week's rent and to beat his wife and 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 abuse his children then I, absolutely i'm in favor of restricting it if however you're talking about a social inter- uh, uh, the alcohol that in, in, imbibes to increase social interaction and enjoyment and knit mm. friends together and enjoy a social gathering then i am all for that alcohol yeah. <laughs> so but i think the the key is what else do you do yes as well it's not just one entity no, it's true. And it, it like diet, fanatical diets, mm. fanatical, fanaticism in any one area is not all that useful. What I think we need to do is assume that most people require balance in health and require variability. It's not two drinks a day every day of your life. It is that there are times where certain foods are in season, where exercise is the right thing to do because it's not thundering and, thunder and raining outside. Mm. But that ability of each organism each person being an organism, to be adaptive to their environment, to adapt to the food and the food adapts to them, and to be able to change their worlds around in response to that. We tend to go for protocols. I don't think protocols are the way to go in the new form of individualized medicine. We have principles which can guide us. Mark Houston's idea about those kind of principles is far more potent than here's the dose of Lipitor, here's the dose of a beta blocker, here's the dose of something. Because one thing you can guarantee is no protocol's absolutely right for any individual. Mm. These are statistical groupings to say, on average, you'll do better with this. But a doctor and a primary care practitioner pays attention to the story. The more time you give a person to tell their story, the more red flags you see go up of Mm. the things that with little intervention make a big difference. If you only have 15 minutes or worse, 10 or 12 minutes, you don't have a lot of time to get to hear what it is that's putting that person at risk. So this is the fight between integrative healthcare and statistical healthcare. We have the so-called evidence-based medicine, the kind of ultra-right-wing, you shall do it only by statistics. And as practitioners, we know you apply those statistics to the wrong person, you can kill them. So the real trick there is to take population medicine and apply it to that person in front of you and yes. say, "Does is it appropriate for him or I, her? I think what we have is this idea of evidence-informed practical decision-making. And the more time you spend with a person to understand what their particular method out is, the more you'll hear them tell you what is wrong. Deeply, people know what's wrong with what they're doing in their life. Mm. they They kid themselves for a while. Often what they come to an integrator practitioner for is, can you beat me into shape on something (laughs) that I already know that I should not be doing? And we do have that opportunity to take the role of saying, do not, you know, you have this particular response to gluten, get off gluten for a while, take three months off it and let's see how you go. If you see C-reactive protein and other cardiac risk factors and the person comes back and says, I feel like a new person and the blood pressure's dropped 15 points, You know you have done something that is not evidence-based in terms of research in the literature, but this is the person in front of you. A trial of N of one trial, which is the person has their own control, is the powerful new ally of the primary care practitioner. So looking at other algorithms that 
one can use or the clinician can use. There's the ACC and the American Heart Association guideline. They've got a great app mm-hmm. um, called the ASCVD Risk yes. app. Um, do you use that or what do you use? There's oh, a yeah. Framingham I use the National well, Prescribing right? Service. They, they update that up uh, fairly regularly. Yep. There's a simple one and you can give it to people, NPS, the National Prescribing Service is the government body that tries to keep an eye on us so that we're not over-prescribing or under-prescribing as doctors. Mm. So rational, reasonable prescribing. So their tools are put the details in. A person can do it themselves on the NPS website. And you can get the prediction of a five-year likelihood of a major cardiovascular event, meaning a heart attack or stroke. And if you come in the green zone, it doesn't mean you're off scot-free, don't pay any attention to it. It just means that drug therapy is unlikely to give you any benefit. If you come into the red zone, that's a much higher likelihood that drug therapy will be required. Hmm. People who get in the red zone, I tend to send to Jason Kaplan and cardiologists who've got a holistic approach to cardiovascular disease. And what I'm surprised about is that when they're put through their paces and when the tests are done, the people, our perception of their risk as a doctor is very high. But when you actually get the documentation, the the calcium scoring and the the vascular kind of uh, reflexes, you find that the risk is nowhere near as high. And that in itself is calming to the person that they say, I've mm. had full risk assessment, I can relax a bit about my heart. So that feedback system means their adrenals get to settle down, they're not running on the worry of will I have a heart attack. And profoundly, that makes a big difference to people knowing that the, if you like, the curse is taken off them. We should get everyone to stop smoking, right? There, there mm. are things that we know are just plain harmful to the Cliff cardiovascular jumping. system. That's right. <laughs> Parachuteless jumping as well of, a, of any type from a plane. So there's no, you don't need double blind trials to say that anymore. Yeah. But when you've picked all the low hanging fruit, what do you do next? Going back to diet, getting people to exercise, motivating them. These are really hard things to do. I'm now getting people to buy the little wristbands. I am getting people to go and pay attention to what they can know about their own health. And I'm excited about that, that give people the tools to get away from doctors to get the feedback, we are amazing creatures with biofeedback. Once we know what our adrenals, our gut, our cardiovascular system is doing, we make changes. We make changes simply because we know then what's going on and we get that feedback. I'm really gung-ho on the idea that people will be their own primary care practitioner because they always have been. You mentioned adrenals and let's talk briefly about the problem with cholesterol. And I I have this ongoing issue and I fall into this myself about saying the word cholesterol when I'm not talking about the molecule of cholesterol. I'm actually talking about a conglomerate called low-density lipoproteins. And we have to differentiate between this. The, The confusion happens. There are doctors who still think that LDL cholesterol is a cholesterol molecule of a slightly different shape to another cholesterol mm-hmm. molecule. Mm. Cholesterol is the backbone of all of our sterile hormones, our aldosterone, our cortisone, progesterone, the pregnenolone, which is the kind of next step after that, and all the sex hormones. And apart from the gonads for young people, once you get to around about 50 years of age, the majority of those hormones are managed entirely in the adrenal glands. The precursor for those is the storage form of the cholesterol molecule, the low-density lipoprotein, the very molecule or the very kind of conglomerate of molecules that we call the evil one that mm. we must kill at all possible, uh, all possible ways. 
that one loads up the adrenals, and if we steal the LDL cholesterol, we run into real problems with cortisone production. So the LDL cholesterol is not evil, it's required, and when you see doctors focus only on the LDL cholesterol, what you see is people getting tireder, weaker, and unable to get their sleep patterns together because they lose their diurnal cycle. And how does this relate to statins? The reason I have an interest in statins is they are the number one drug for people turning up at my practice saying something is wrong and I think it is X. It used to be warfarin mm. in the past. Mm. Now it's statins, 10 to 1 in favor of any other medication. So I pay attention to statins because the trial of treatment is to take them off their statin. People think that if you take them off their statin, they may die overnight. Mm. And the classic line of a doctor is, if you stop your statins, you will die. The bad news for everyone is whether you stop statins or not, everyone dies. <laughs> it, you die over years, mm. not over days or weeks. Yep. But people get so stressed about stopping a statin for a trial that they need to have a doctor say, no, no, you do not die quickly here. You get to find out whether it is healthier for you to be on statins or not. And we need to break that nexus where medicine runs on fear. Mm. Well, I will give you a statin. If you come off it, you will die. Mm without ever saying you will die very slowly many years in the future, we pretend that it's going to happen straight away. And people do deserve that trial off statins just to find out, as the cholesterol may well rise, does your health come back? Where statins are a problem is they stop people exercising. They stop the primary things. So depression goes up, weakness, fatigue. Anyone in chronic muscle pain knows what it's like to be living in pain a lot of the time. So you steal the health away from a person to achieve an objective of cardiovascular event reduction. And without saying to the person, but you need to choose that statin perfect. Uh, very, very selectively. If you need to be on a statin, we need to know. If it may, it may need to be the right statin, water-soluble versus non-water-soluble. Those are questions that we have the time to be able to ask a person and make sensible decisions. And for at least half of all the people on statins, probably two-thirds, they don't need statins at all. There is another way of managing it that has never been tried. So how should this trial off statins be managed, though? By whom? The trial of statins should be done by a doctor simply because the insurance is better for doctors and we should know our drug therapies and I don't think a natural healthcare practitioner should ever just summarily stop a drug without interaction with the medical practitioner. So that conversation needs to be there but more and more doctors are now willing to engage in that conversation and interestingly it's been since that Catalyst program. Doctors are at least aware that A, statins don't kill you overnight if you stop them, and B, there are a lot more people than we thought. The studies early on said 1% of people with uh, the muscle pain and the uh, muscle Tired, wasting yeah. tiredness mm -hmm. and fatigue, now we regard it as probably 25 to 30%. Not trivial at all. When you put a million people on statins, mm. that's a lot of people who've lost their health in the pursuit of a non-event for cardiovascular But disease. I differentiate between the term. We did this uh, with Jason Kaplan previously, and that is the differentiation between myalgia, which is the muscle pain or perhaps tiredness, versus the myositis, a clinical pathological change in the muscle fibre, yes. which is much more rare. It's much rarer, but again, not as rare as people have put forward. The creatine kinase is a good measure to see what is going on in those areas. The creatine kinase rises in many more people than you would expect. And so before starting statins, it's a very good idea to get the lactate dehydrogenase, which is called LD, and the creatine kinase, which is a CK, CK. measurement. You need a baseline. 
a person who starts a, you know, with a value of, say, 70 or 80, who goes up to 170 or 180, may not be out of the normal range, but may be on that way. And the, the increase of direct inflammation and myositis puts all the emphasis back on inflammation in the cardiovascular system yet again. Mm. Autoimmunity does the same thing. So the other thing that people with autoimmune disease find is with the statins, whatever it was that was protecting them against symptoms falls away pretty quickly and they suffer the symptoms of joint pain, they suffer the symptoms of inflammation. So it, the statins are a complex issue. They seem to have some anti-inflammatory effects. They seem to have some pro-inflammatory effects. Mm. They've just been put in the little basket of they're good for you because they stop heart disease. But the, the suggestions are there's much more complex. Yeah, there's an interesting little sideline a few years ago about the potential use in cancer. Mm. Yeah, and in diabetes, right? So they're being prescribed routinely now for diabetics, no matter what the the uh, cholesterol levels are, but there's suggestions that they mm. may contribute to the onset of mm. diabetes. Mm. So the statin thing was too simplistic to begin with. It's great as a public health message. Everyone should be on statins. 40% of the population Keep should be up. on them, but it's poor medicine. Mm. And medicine does come back to get the information from the studies, apply it to the right person and you do good apply it to the wrong person and all you end up with is an unhealthy patient right in front of you. Dr. Mark Donahoe, I love the way that you take population medicine and you personalise it. So thank you so much for taking us through those finite responses that uh, Dr. Mark Houston talks about, the oxidative stress, the inflammation and immune dysfunction. And I thank you so much for also taking us through how to responsibly and safely trial people um, in getting off certain medications and with getting the right their health back. Getting, getting their health back is number one priority for us as integrated practitioners and the job of us as specialised specialised practitioners is to make sure we don't kill anybody along the way. This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Mm-hmm.